Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report number 35. It's Sunday, February 26th, and man, we've got some juicy things to talk about. So one of the things I want to start with is uh, just to touch on supply chains. There's there's so many obviously leading indicators that disinflationary pressures are occurring. The concern is how long it takes some of these pressures, the disinflationary ones, to actually be felt by us. And that's what gives the bears a very strong argument that, hey, look, the Fed's going to end up overdoing it. It's almost like in a weird way, both the bulls and bears are in agreement that, hey, inflation is going to come down. The problem is the signals that are being sent to the Fed might not exactly be the things the bulls want to hear because the bears are potentially and rightfully so saying, look, it takes a while for disinflation to actually make its way through the market. I mean, we've been seeing leading rents, for example, on owner for actual housing come down for about 10 months now. Yet CPI's owner equivalent rent is still going up massively lagging indicator. But there's yet another one I was reading about this morning, and it's almost at every level of the economy you see this. It has to do with shipping containers. Yes, longer range shipping containers have come down to back to their pre-pandemic lows, but more shorter duration shipping contracts haven't yet. They're still twice as high as they were in 2019. And with 70% of goods going through containers and 70% of, well, I should say, let me clarify that, 70% of goods that travel in containers are traveling in containers that have contracts for basically the shipping rates contracted and negotiated in 2021 or 2022, in other words, longer term contracts, it might take quite a while to actually see that sort of disinflationary pressure work its way through the economy. So I wanted to start with that tidbit today, just that, look, if, if you're betting on a really big decline in fast and inflation, we could be disappointed with the amount of patience it takes. And that was some one of my largest lessons over the last couple of years here is, you could have the best thesis in the world for the market, but patience is usually where we can mess up and end up shooting ourselves in the foot. So watch for patience. Patience is so important when it comes to markets. Uh, and it, it really shows, look, if housing is going to require patience and supply chains are going to require patience in terms of those shipping contracts. And another one, look at labor. Even though the supply, the availability of labor has been skyrocketing, it's going to take a while to actually see that create any kind of disinflationary impetus. Because even if companies are just motivated to raise prices less, <laughs> that still means they're potentially raising prices. So something to keep in mind is just that patience. There's one big thing to, to really declare uh, today. It's, it's patience. Take that away. Take that home. Uh, yesterday, I did fly uh, to uh, Sacramento. I have to say, who, anybody who lives in Sacramento, I think you live in a beautiful place. Uh, I know yesterday was unseasonably cold. It was 38 degrees. I actually drove just a little bit north of uh, uh, Sacramento and was able to check out the snow for Max. Max has never been in the snow. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, when, when you drive north of Sac, you'll have no snow for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like you're in World of Warcraft and you just like switched into a different biome. And all of a sudden, everything's covered with snow and it's it's just like crazy weather. It's so weird. Even on the way back, when we crossed that sort of line, we're like, we saw the loading screen basically and we were in a different zone. <laughs> it's so wild. Uh, that's the road you take. I think it's the uh, 80 going up to Reno and Tahoe, which is kind of crazy. But Sac's beautiful. So great, great job, Sacramento. Really enjoyed Sac yesterday. You could actually see a lot of that because we won't be making a larger video out of out of that trip. 
because it was more of a family day, uh, check out my Instagram or the YouTube stories and you'll be able to see some of the properties we looked at. I made sure to post a little bit more uh, uh, of, uh, of the actual properties we were looking at. Uh, and really, I've noticed one of my problems is when I get into a property, I kind of forget to IG or, or story. But I think yesterday I did a pretty good job. So check those out. I think you'll enjoy them. That was really fun. Uh, also wanted to just give a shout out to uh, Ricky Carruth. He, uh, uh, he made a really cool video uh, right here. You can check it out. I flew with Meet Kevin. And he kind of gives you an idea of what it's like uh, shadowing. Uh, me for a day. So that was really cool. So you could uh, just type that into YouTube, Ricky, and then, uh, you know, meet Kevin or whatever. So, uh, uh, you know, the great, uh, great weekend so far. Sundays are usually my favorite day because I can kind of uh, focus a little bit more on the back end stuff. <laughs> really, it's like not, not surrounded by uh, as much, uh, as much activity, should I say, a little bit quieter. But a lot to talk about today. I want to start uh, with uh, talking about models and uh, not talking about girl models, sadly, talking about, uh, or if you're a girl, guy model, or vice versa, depending on what your preference is, talking about financial models. We're going to talk about a model that JP Morgan brings up. Uh, so we'll take a look at that. Uh, okay, let's go ahead in here. I have no idea what you're saying. In another video, you said people should own if you buy stocks on a brokerage like Weeble or Fidelity, do you own these? I have no idea what you're asking, bro. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe rephrase that question. Okay, go. let's go start with this models chat. and get this ready here. Stand by for the models. It's actually going to be really interesting because this is an effect that uh, very few people talk about uh, on here. And actually, I don't think I've ever seen anybody talk about this before. So this will be a unique set of perspective, which really, really remember, that's that's my, always my goal, is if I could provide a unique perspective, then I think everyone wins. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll get to see your commentary on it as well. All right, here we go. Now we got to talk about the Cantillon effect. It's a French word, it's a French effect, and it's really impressive because it might blow your mind in terms of uh, traditional economics. But what I'm going to do to start uh, with this effect is I'm going to introduce what Jamie Dimon just said, and it'll show you why this effect potentially is so important. So take a listen to Jamie Dimon here for a moment on Jim Cramer. We're not going to listen to all of this, but let's get started. Nothing wrong because maybe that's too short a term. Maybe what we're thinking about when we talk, we talk about the Fed is not what is happening, uh, boots on the ground here. Yeah, I think they're different. I mean, the Fed, look, they have, I have all the all respect for Jay Powell, uh, but you know, the fact is we lost a little bit of control of inflation. Models didn't pick that up. I've always been suspicious of models and when right. we use them extensively, I always say, well, you use a little bit of judgment too. Uh, and there's been a sea change. Governments are borrowing a lot of money and you got to incorporate that in what's taking place. That means they're spending it. That's inflationary. Wages we haven't we've seen come down, but not so much. Right. Oil and gas will probably be going up because you know the investment has been curtailed. Right. Uh, and you know the the, the green environment, green economy. We think it's close to four trillion dollars a year of additional spending. So you're talking in the uh, IRA Act, which I think has a lot of good stuff in it. The Infrastructure Act, the Chicks Act. This is huge money. And so you know me, you've had a sea change. And I think we should all get adjusted to that. You know, we'll have more normalization of interest rates, and we'll be fine. Just remember, America's most prosperous on the planet. Oh, we'll be fine. Okay, but, but. I'm going to pause there because the rest is actually less interesting. But let me just highlight some of the things he mentioned here, and then we'll get into those models. So first of all, Jamie Dimon is really taking this position that, I don't know, man, even though we've gone away from sort of the monetary money printing, which is the Federal Reserve basically bailing everyone out, 
uh, via essentially the unlimited money printing, uh, which was then distributed via stimulus checks, uh, unemployment pay, PPP loans, whatever. What you actually have now is Jamie Dimon saying, look, the Inflation Reduction Act is cool and all, but energy, green energy is $4 trillion of potential new inflationary impetus. Government spending, government subsidies could actually be the next wave of stimmy checks. That's actually really interesting. He says that because one of the things that I use to describe the CHIPS Act, which is another act that was just passed, which is massive, 80 plus billion dollars of, of uh, support and subsidies uh, and then sanctions and restrictions on chips, uh, specifically for chip companies and preventing China from being able to access some of our technology, although they just steal it anyway. Those are basically massive stimulus checks for the chip makers. I mean, Taiwan Semiconductors, Intel, NVIDIA, uh, doesn't matter whether it's the chip maker or, or the actual chip designer. There is so much stimulus money going into energy, batteries, EV chargers. Look at the stimmy checks. Basically, Tesla's going to be getting from hanging out with Joe Biden. Hey, yeah, we'll open up your supercharger network in exchange for a few billies so we can make more superchargers everywhere so our Tesla owners don't get pissed off at all the congestion that we're going to create by letting other people use the chargers. Jamie Dimon, in the nicest way possible, is basically saying we are going from people stimmy checks to corporate welfare in chips and energy, and it's going to have a massive inflationary impetus. That's actually, by the way, how China stimulates. China during this recession, uh, or, or sort of this COVID pandemic, did not stimulate their people with stimmy checks and, and cash. They, the people had to go save their own money. It was very difficult for, uh, for, for Chinese individuals relative to, to uh, Americans or even Europeans in, in regards to how much government support we were receiving on an individual basis. And in China, you focused on corporate welfare, corporate support, corporate stimulus. Well, that, that's basically what Jamie Dimon is suggesting we're moving into, this potentially new inflationary regime driven by government spending and how we have to ignore models, traditional economic models. And we're likely to see what he says is a normalization of interest rates. That's a way of saying we probably won't be going back to 0%. Maybe we're going to stay at a Fed funds rate of 3 or 4% for quite a while longer, and we've got to get used to this idea. And that means markets really have to adjust to higher rates for longer. That sort of reiterates what I've said earlier. Patience, patience, patience. It's a very interesting idea. But another very interesting idea that somewhat uh, uh, compounds what Jamie Dimon suggests here is the following. And we're going to, this is so remarkable. I'm going to read a lot of this and add commentary. Uh, it's not that long. It's really worth it because in my opinion, it's, it's just mind-blowing insight uh, into perspective on economics. So if you're an econ person, this is phenomenal. I, I mean, like I usually think the flash sale on the programs on building your wealth that's going on right now or the shadowing experience, you know, come learn from me directly, ask me questions, whatever. I think that's incredible. And that's, that's a really good deal. But this effect is insane. All right, you ready for this? So I really like this. Let's, let's go through this, some of this together. So the Cantillon effect is a change in relative prices resulting from a change in money supply. This is very, uh, that sounds complicated, but it should be a very, very simple. Basically, what is being said is, look, inflation occurs when you change 
the money supply, how much money supply there is. We're gonna keep going here in just a moment because it gets more interesting than that. You might think to yourself, oh, well, that's obvious, right? Like, you print more money than you get inflation, right? Not necessarily. And this is the crazy thing about what Jamie Dimon says about models because The Economist just talked about exactly this as well. So The Economist did this really, really good piece. The piece is uh, right here. And it's uh, lots of investors think inflation is under control, not so fast. And if we go through this piece, we'll actually find uh, that there's a lot of talk about sort of the traditional uh, uh, idea of inflation, which is that, okay, well, if we have uh, higher rates, we have higher rates to fight inflation. And basically, the way we calculate inflation is just as a formulaic measure of what's unemployment and what are rates doing. That's sort of the old school and traditional Keynesian way to look at inflation. But The Economist makes this really interesting argument right here that aligns with what Jamie Dimon is saying and aligns with what the Cantillon effect is saying. Take a look at this. Tracking the money supply is deeply unfashionable. So again, when I read that definition of the Cantillon, whatever effect, you might be thinking to yourself, oh yeah, well duh, inflation goes up when the money supply goes up, right? But look, it's actually not the traditional school of thought. Even The Economist reiterates that. Tracking the money supply is deeply unfashionable. Since the 80s, central banks have generally focused on interest rates rather than trying to fix the amount of money in circulation. Money does not even feature, as in, in other words, money is not even a part of the, quote, state-of-the-art models, there's that word models, of inflation. In other words, the models of inflation that we use today don't even care about the money supply, which completely ignores the Cantillon effect. I have no idea how to say that word, so I'm just going to keep going with that, by the way, and I'm not going to excuse myself anymore. So here we go. Which, the traditional models are interest rates, the real economy, which, could, which includes labor, and inflation expectations. So in other words, traditional economic models say, hey, we got to look at what are rates, what's the economy doing, and what are expectations of inflation? We've heard that a million times before, certainly from my channel as well. Hey, as long as inflation expectations are anchored, maybe we're okay. But that's also important to make sure that we're on the path towards disinflation. Otherwise, oh God, otherwise those uh, expectations will break. And then we have to make things worse, like throwing your pencil. Oh, I hope I didn't break the tip. Oh, it still works. Okay, cool. Anyway, so what do we have? Yet, the money supply was one of the few indicators to provide an advanced warning of inflation across the OECD, Organization of Economically Developed Countries, a broad measure of the uh, this sort of warning supply or, or warning from the money supply shows that we saw a 12% increase uh, in the six months after February 2020. So in other words, by about August of 2020, which was really about a year and 13, maybe a year and three months. Yeah, about a year and three months before like getting to the end of 2021, where we really started getting nervous about inflation. We actually already saw the warnings in the money supply. And it was a massive red flag that big inflation was coming simply by looking at the expansion of the money supply. But it's not just the expansion of the money supply that's interesting. We'll have to go into detail about that. So well, let's keep going. And I'll tell you, if you think it's just money supply up, higher inflation, that's actually wrong. It does have to do with the money supply, but it's actually the derivative of the money supply that matters. I'll explain that in a moment. I'm not a big fan of calculus either, so don't worry about that. But I'll explain that. So let's keep going. 
A recent study by economists at the Bank of International or Four International Settlements finds that countries with stronger money growth saw markedly higher inflation and that incorporating money growth into inflation forecasts would have improved their accuracy. So in other words, maybe what we need to do when we're trying to predict inflation is actually look at the change in money supply growth rates, there's the derivative, and then we might know what could actually happen with inflation. We're gonna go back to the cantillonate or whatever effect in just a moment, but let me explain that. So if the money supply, okay, so let's call it the M2 money supply is going up like this, do we have inflation or not, according to the, what we just read from The Economist? The answer actually is no. Now that seems weird, right? But that's because this is linear, okay? Now let me change that. If the money supply is growing like this, do we have inflation or not? The answer is yes, because the derivative, which is the rate of growth here is exponential. Here, the rate of growth is constant. So the growth rate is, if, if we're now measuring the first derivative, which is like the acceleration, think about it like when you hit your gas in your car. If you get to one level of, in, of, of acceleration where you're adding maybe, I'll just say a mile per hour per second, let's just say, your, your actual rate of growth or your, your acceleration is actually constant, right? The graph of your acceleration is constant, it's flat. You're accelerating at the same speed. When you're accelerating at the same speed, your potential and, and your money supply is rising, you're not actually creating inflation according to this argument. The argument is actually that when you hit the gas faster and faster and faster, and you're accelerating faster and faster and faster, and your derivative line is growing. In other words, the rate of growth is expanding. So in other words, if you're thinking about like company earnings, think about that a little bit differently. Think if you're growing at 25%, 25%, 25%, your rate of growth is constant, right? But if you're growing at the money supply at 25%, then 35%, then 45%, your, or maybe even 50% to, to go along with the sort of the more exponential curve there, maybe it's even 60%, right? Now your rate of growth has shifted from a constant to much faster. What happens when you do that? Boom, inflation. That's where the inflation comes from. And it's really interesting because if you look at the money supply graph, you could see right here, Look at the constant, almost constant increase of the money supply here, right? No inflation, no inflation right here during all of this, no inflation. But look at when the rate of growth changed. Boop, big fat rate of change, right? That was a red flag. That was a huge warning signal that said, uh oh, the rate of change has exploded. We're about to deal with a whole hell of a lot of inflation. That's Fascinating. Now let's keep going with the Candelion effect. Uh, okay, I feel like I'm saying it like Ital an Italian, but it's actually French. Uh, see, it came from a 1680s book, which actually came before Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations book. Uh, and it's the uh, Essay sur la nature de commerce en general, whatever. Essay on the nature of trade in general. Okay, whatever, who cares? So, since the 2000s, the world's largest central banks started to run out of policy tools like lowering interest rates, and many were aggressively creating new money during each major financial crisis. Yeah, so you have a financial crisis, they just turn the money printers on. 
The current state of the U.S. economy is experiencing inflation expanding during the Biden administration at rapid levels, resulting in the increase in prices that occur in energy, blue-collar labor, and food, but not in other products and services. Keep in mind, this article is a little bit older, but it teaches us a principle that is very important today, okay? It's, it's very important to internalize this one. Uh, I would like, personally, I would write this down in your notes somewhere because it's so interesting. But anyway, with the creation of the U.S. Fed and the U.S. Ex exiting the gold standard, the C effect has favored investors and owners over wage earners, workers in the aggregate. Okay, I started my channel around that thesis. My channel exists around the belief that you will not build wealth if you are not either an investor in uh, stocks or bonds, real estate, or businesses. That's it. You have three choices to get rich in America, okay? Stocks, bonds, businesses, real estate. If you have none of those, you're probably poor and you're going to stay poor. It's just like, I wish they would teach you that in fifth grade. So you could like put that mindset to work earlier, but you don't. most people don't learn that until they're like 25 or 35 or 45. And, and then it starts getting too late. It's sad, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe they do that by design. It's sad. The C effect also had a theory in which the beneficiaries of the state creating the currency is based on the institutional setup of that state. This essentially means he who is close to the king and the wealthy likely benefited from the distributional choices of the currency through the system. Think about all the PPP money, right? Like the people with guess what? Real estate, stocks, and businesses got the gold. <laughs> anyway, since the 1950s, most of the world has adopted a Keynesian style of uh, economic theory. In times of financial crisis, the central banks are used to increase the money supply and the large banking institutions like Jamie Dimon and the capital markets distribute or lend out that money, call markets and prevent bank closures. Time and time, it is clear the, uh, uh, that in the case of the US capital markets, many of the US banks, large private equity houses and Wall Street fare well after central bank QE. I mean, that's obvious. So they turn on the money printer, who wins? It's banks, private equity, and Wall Street. Whereas you individual savers are usually the ones who deal with the jump in inflation and the loss of purchasing power. That's during a QE regime, right? So in other words, they're saying, look, under the Keynesian economic school of thought, when you turn on the money printer to sort of minimize the effects of a recession, you're really benefiting rich people more. You're hurting poor people because of the inflation you're creating thanks to the derivative change or the change in the derivative of, of the uh, uh, rate of growth of the money supply. Anyway, chanting the phrase by various heads of state of Build Back Better can essentially mean who gets the new money out of the crisis and where shall that capital be allocated? Okay, now this is interesting because look how crazy and crazily this relates to what Jamie Dimon says. Jamie Dimon says, energy, like the green explosion, basically chips, right? That's who wins. That's who wins. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. All right. So by analyzing the current U.S. financial and economic system, tech companies like Amazon, which lobby the U.S. government and U.S. airlines benefited tremendously. That could be said of other governments across the world as well. 
The pandemic was a boom for the ultra-rich, according to the World Economic Forum. Interestingly, with the passive passage of the CARES Act, PPI, UBI, basically, uh, you know, blah, 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 we basically supported businesses. Okay, fine. With the Federal Reserve now preaching about the risks of U.S. income inequality and climate change, which is interesting as their QE policies have clearly widened the income gap, what policies can be used to mitigate the Gentleon effect? How are institutional investors such as sovereign wealth funds pension funds and, uh, and, and basically uh, institution, how, how is Wall Street getting ready for the crash, so to speak, when QE goes away? Now, what's interesting is I didn't tell you this, but this was written basically at the top of the market, October 2021. In other words, they used the Cantillon effect to predict the disaster that was about to happen. In other words, Hey, QE, really great for Wall Street, private equity and businesses and the rich. But when that QE flip-flops, be careful. It's going to be hard unless you have new forms of government support. Now, what complicates things today is we do have new forms of government support. And they happen to be in energy uh, and the green space, as well as chips. There's a reason why when I keep talking about my PP, uh, that is pricing power stocks, when I keep talking about PP, pricing power style stocks, there's a reason why I think there's a massive wind at the backs of chips, AV makers, battery makers, ETC. There's a reason, <laughs> okay? Uh, that's why I'm a big fan of pricing power style stocks, especially based on, on the handouts of government stimulus. Unfortunately, the Cantillon whatever effect now suggests that we're having a reversal of the massive inflation uh, effects via looking at the M2 money supply. We could see that the previous rate of growth that we've had in the M2 money supply has actually turned negative. Now, that's obviously because we're going through a quantitative tightening cycle. So let me explain that in relation to this effect quickly. If previously, and I'm going to, I'm just going to overly simplify this, okay? If previously we were growing the money supply at 2% a year, so we're going plus 2%, plus 2%, plus 2%. There we go. How much inflation do we get? Zero, because the rate of change is actually constant. So it's almost like inflation is a factor of the rate of change in the expansion of the money supply. So when this all of a sudden became, say, plus 10%, plus 10%, right? During the massive money printing we went through, what did we get? Oh, wow we got, you know, basically plus 10% inflation. Holy smokes, how simple. It's almost scary how simple it is. But the warning signs were there. And and just to, to show you kind of maybe where we are with actual numbers today, let me go to this piece right here. Uh, it is, uh, they show us how, how close we are. I'm pretty sure when I get to green over here. There we go. Look at this. The expansion of the money supply is about 17% today and consumer prices are about 14% above trend today. In other words, consumer prices are almost completely caught up to, to this change in rate of the expansion of the money supply. Okay, so let's go back to where we were under this page. Okay, so zero rate of change, zero inflation. Money supply is growing constantly. Massive increase in the money supply, M2 here on the left, right? And what happens? Inflation skyrockets. What are we actually getting now? Well, now we're actually in this environment 
where we're reducing at, let's just say, a constant rate, okay? So the money supply is declining at a constant rate. So gee, I wonder what's going to happen with inflation. It's obvious, it's gonna go down. Uh, this is where people are like, and including the, bull, the bulls and the bears are slamming their heads against tables going, Fed, like it's, it's gonna go down. You're going to overdo it. And the recession is going to be what the bad part is because you're gonna destroy so many companies. And this is where you get a lot of the bears saying, look, there's no reason why companies should be becoming more valuable right now, especially in certain sectors, which I believe are ones that don't benefit from the new sort of stimmy checks. That would be staples, uh, grocery stores, staples, McDonald's, restaurants. These guys, in my opinion, Costco's, uh, right, the, uh, the, uh, whatever. These are the ones that are probably going to end up getting screwed in the next few years. And it's the ones that are getting the stimmy checks while we're visiting deflation, then in my opinion, you're going to see the massive explosion uh, of, of value. And, and that's why I personally am so heavily focused right now on chips, EV, battery makers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Tesla, whatever, 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 because we're likely to see that disinflation, while at the same time, the people getting stimmy are these sectors. So while you get disinflation and the Fed likely pushing the broader market towards recession because they're so behind, they're not paying attention to the cantillon effect. They're not paying attention to that. Instead, they're paying attention more to the traditional Keynesian economic school thought. You probably have the Fed pushing us over the, over the edge into a, into a sort of a, a darker territory, which is bearish for a lot of markets broadly. But in my opinion, actually oddly bullish for the, the ones who are surviving and getting the stimmy checks. And those are those here. So hopefully you learned something with the Gandalone effect. Man, take a shot every time I've said that in this video. You'll be fine. Just don't drive. Cheers. All right, that was fun. I like that one. That 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 whatever effect. That should be the can't effect. <laughs> oh, James O'Leary. Are you related to Kevin O'Leary? Anyway, James O'Leary says in all caps, okay, all caps. You ready for this? Do you care? People who followed you got hurt on shift badly. Where have you been? I've been talking about how terrible shift will be as an investment since the beginning of the US vehicle shortages in like February to April of 2021. You're asking me about a stock that I liked two years ago and then promptly flip-flopped on when we went into a used car shortage. When you go into a shortage, guess who loses? The vendors, the ones who make money off transactions. Guess who's losing today in the real estate market? Real estate agents. You know, some people are like, what about sellers? Prices have gone down a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But not, I mean, maybe prices across the board in the United States are down 10%, but guess what? Transactions are down 37%. So guess who loses when transactions are down 37%? EXP Realty, Redfin, Zillow, Remax, Coldwell Banker. Guess what shift is like? Like all of those companies I just talked about. So I'm sorry if you did not pay attention. You need to put your big boy pants on and go, I listened to a thesis two years ago, and then I didn't come back for the follow-up. Wow, I'm an idiot, and I can only blame myself. That's what you need to do. 
I'm sorry, but I am also not sorry because I've been very clear on the channel if you've been following me. In fact, I tell you my thoughts every day. I'll take an L. I shorted Airbnb going into earnings. That was stupid. <laughs> they did very well. I'll take the L. But if I've been saying the same damn thing over and over and over again, I'm not going to take an L because you were an idiot and you weren't listening. That's your problem. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's say here. Uh, let's take a look at some comments because it's fun. M2 dropping at the same rate as Treasury purchases. Look, Treasuries are competing with regular CDs and bank depositors, retail ventures. There, there are potential uh, black swan considerations in uh, the bond market. One of the weirdest things that's happening right now is the creation of the repo market, right? The reverse repo market and how much it's being used because banks have so much excess capital uh, and they're not using it to buy bonds in the bond market. They're parking it in the repo market. And the repo market is, is barely seeing a drawdown. Now, what's really interesting about that is it kind of makes you wonder, like, when the Federal Reserve rate exceeds what, you know, six-month T-bills are paying you, you, banks are better off just parking their money in the repo market than they are buying treasury bonds. That means less buyers for treasuries. Less buyers for treasuries means price of treasuries down, yields up. When yields go up, guess what loses? Real estate. So that's why I'm still bearish real estate. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, it, I mean, as soon as rates fall, you'll get some quick st stability. You saw that in December, January. You have a massive lack of inventory in January. That's a duh. Like, most listings expire. They're written for December 31st. And then sellers get discouraged and they take their properties off the market. Just wait for the, the spring surge of inventory. And if the spring surge of inventory aligns with the, uh, uh, with, with the sort of fear of year-over-year -year price declines and high rates, oh boy, that's going to that's gonna be really entertaining to see. I think it's very bad news, very bad news, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. All right, let's see here. Mm. Okay, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, this, is a fair, this is a fair argument. Uh, so I want to I want to touch on this. Give me one sec. Now, fair follow up here. You says a you say a constant rate of M two increase increase didn't lead to inflation. How does a constant rate of decrease mean deflation? Okay, let's let's clarify that because you're right. When we go back to the question mark I drew here, the the point that really is being made is it's to say that okay, if we're switching. So when we inflect, when we inflect, there will be an impetus change. And even if that impetus change is going back to zero, right, which is not deflation, this change right here is considered disinflation, right? Going from a higher level to a lower level, that's considered disinflation. Going negative would be deflation, right? Generally, it's going to be technology that's going to push you into deflation, which could happen. But you're right. Let's clarify that. Let's not go as far as calling it deflation. But the idea would be, uh, if, if, if we're getting to this, this impetus of, of a, a contracting money supply, we should be approaching zero. Now, obviously, this is a broad effect, and it's hard to sort of micro down and say this is exactly what's going to happen. But I would, I would guess solely by looking at this effect, and of course, the leading indicators we're looking at, whether it's corporations, earnings calls, whatever it may be, 
it uh, and, and the supply of labor, which has exploded. It, we do still have crazy labor mismatches, though, which is a problem. But anyway, we would expect to see disinflation over the next few years very, very rapidly and very quickly. But when I say very rapidly, uh, that's over the, the span of a few years. Uh, and, and so I, I suppose you have to zoom out to call that rapid. Uh, but I, I do think that in 10 years from now, we look back and we're going to go, uh, wow, yeah, money supply was expanding at a constant rate. Okay, no surprise. Inflation was what? Stable. Oh, you all of a sudden expanded money supply super quickly. What happened? Oh, wow, you had inflation. Oh, then you went back to a stable money supply uh, and a stable rate of now contracting money supply. What happened? Oh, wow, inflation basically went back to stable, right? This And then this period of time right here, right here, I think this is what you'll end up labeling as, uh, uh, there we go, let's write this here, transitory. Uh, now, again, that'll be painful because it'll actually have been 2022 to probably 2024 or five, right? So this period of time will have felt very long uh, and hellish, but it, it could, according to this principle, should end up proving to be accurate. Uh, and then who wins during that time? Well, again, the ones getting the stimmy checks, in my opinion. My thesis. My thesis. Uh, so, you know. All right. Stand by. Uh, there we go. Good follow-up question. Thank you for that. I always appreciate that kind of clarity. Uh, Two-acre piece of undeveloped land in a desirable location paying 2K interest a month. Was working to sell to a developer in Q2 last year. Not sure what to do. All right, I hate to say this, but the number one thing I say not to buy in the real estate investing course is land. Land is an alligator. Like, it makes you no money, unless you're, you're in farmland, then that's different. It makes you no money, and uh, it's illiquid, uh, and it, it costs you money, right? You have to maintain the lot, and then if you have a loan on it, you have to pay, as you said, interest on it. Personally, I would get rid of that lot as quickly as possible. Not personalized financial advice for you. That's what I would be thinking. I think development is very difficult. If you're getting into development, you better have a lot of experience in development. And speculating on raw land is very difficult because you're not selling it to, uh, you know, a home buyer of which there are millions, right? You're selling it to someone who specifically wants to develop there. That's very challenging. Uh, so yeah. Anyway. I, 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 I don't, <laughs> you know, now the worst kind of land you could buy would be land with alligators on it. Because, I mean, then it's just ironic. <laughs> uh, more Austrian economics. Yeah, okay, so by the way, what we just described was Austrian economics school of thought, right? The, the Cantillon effect. Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm, uh, uh, uh. All right, let's go on to the next topic. Oh, yeah, we get to talk Tesla next. That's going to be cool. All right, let's do some Tesla talk. What is What does a good old Kathy have to say about Tesla? Uh, this is quite interesting. So we're going to pull this up. It's also cool because I, you know, I interviewed Brett Witten from uh, Ark Invest. In our flagship strategy. Oops, he was great. 
Uh, watch that on my channel if you haven't yet. Just type into YouTube, meet Kevin, uh, Ark Invest, or, or Brett Witt, or whatever. Okay. One sec. All right. Uh, right. So let's go five seconds. <clears throat> now we got to talk about a Tesla. We got to talk about not only what Kathy Wood says regarding Tesla, her price target on Tesla, but we got to talk about is she interested in BYD and why is she interested in BYD? Are they even remotely interested in automation? What kind of cost curve reductions are we looking at? Is it just batteries or is there something else to pay attention to as well? And has Elon Musk liked any of Kevin's tweets yesterday? Well, I kind of gave that away. Yes, <laughs> follow me on Twitter to find out uh, which one. Actually, uh, no, I'll just show it to you on screen right here. It's kind of cool, uh, like woke up to it this morning. So Elon Musk liked your tweet. Government should never limit the potential of anyone to equalize privilege. Government should help those who were dealt a worse hand. Example given, don't be like California, specifically Culver City, removing honors classes because not everyone is represented. Instead, invest in more education for those following behind. Yes, yes, great tweet. Oh, wait, I'm just complimenting myself. I'm sorry. Anyway, follow me on Twitter at RealMeetKevin and make sure to follow me on Instagram where I'm posting a lot of stories of uh, our real estate travels, including yesterday. We won't be making a video out of that content because it was more of a family day, but you'll get to see some of the houses we were looking at. So check that out as well as the flash sale on the programs on Building Your Wealth, link down below, which is linked to Tesla Investor Day, which is coming up on March 1st. My thesis, by the way, on Tesla Investor Day, if you haven't yet seen it, make sure to type into YouTube, Meet Kevin, Tesla is bankrupting the competition, Tesla Investor Day preview. Gives you some pretty cool insights about the potential for what the Model 2 might actually be, and it might be a lot more obvious than it seems. So watch that video, but for now, let's listen to Kathy and respond. Our flagship strategy, which which is ARKK, Tesla is our largest holding. But if you look at ARKQ, which is our autonomous um, our, our autonomous technology and robotic strategy, we also own other uh, names like BYD in China and Xpeng uh, and a little Neo as well. Now, uh, why uh, do we think uh, EVs are the place to be? Well, uh, we are analyzing ba uh, battery technology, but more important, drivetrain ba uh, technology, which includes batteries. And if you look at the cost curves associated with drivetrains, what you'll see is that for every cumulative doubling in the number of electric vehicles uh, sold, produced and sold, Cost decline by roughly 28%. Uh, so, and so, it seems as though already. Keep that in mind for a moment. If, let's say, a drivetrain costs a uh, thousand bucks, once you produce twice as many, so let's say Tesla goes from a million vehicles to two million vehicles or any electric vehicle manufacturer, she's basically saying that thousand bucks is now potentially only going to cost, uh, let's say, 28% minus, so $720. Great, that's fantastic. Now remember, the battery day or the investor day goal is to potentially show how the next master plan three, MP3, can reduce costs, all costs, by 50% for cost of goods sold of, of electric vehicles at Tesla. 
Uh, of course, she's broadly talking about just specifically EV drivetrains and how those cost declines are so rapid, something that you're not seeing in ICE vehicles. Those have already reached essentially their, their bottom in costs. Like you're not making internal combustion engines cheaper. They've already hit they're, they're low, so to speak, and if anything, their, their, their longer-term cost has started to trend up because of just the inflationary impetus that we've been going through. But anyway, let's keep going. Already, the total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle is lower than that of a gas-powered vehicle, which means, uh, which, which helps us understand why last year, electric vehicle sales globally were up, I believe it was 62 or 64 percent, while gas-powered vehicles were down about 7 percent globally. So the electric vehicle shift is underway. Consumers want electric vehicles, a total cost of ownership cheaper. So last year, there were 7.7 million electric vehicles sold around the world. We think that number is going to 60 million in the next five years. Now, the consensus estimated that it is that it's going to only 20 million. So there's still a big gap between... Think about that. That's a 3x she's suggesting. In where we are and where the consensus view is. That 60 million, we believe, will account for 75% roughly of all vehicles sold in five years. So electric vehicles, very important. Now, many people focused on Asia say, wait a minute, BYD is winning here. And if you look at last year's sales, BYD sales, if you look at hybrids and battery electric vehicles, they were up 211% to roughly 1.8 million units, whereas Tesla's vehicle sales were only up 40%. And so the question from Asia is, well, isn't BYD, BYD ahead of the game here? Uh, you might say yes based on those statistics but if you take out high by the way this is a uh, a counter to charlie munger right charlie munger's like ah oh, byd is going so great so this is basically without saying it kathy wood directly responding to charlie munger now because of where i paused here she's basically saying if you take out hybrids here we go hybrid vehicles and we think hybrid is is going away hybrid is two systems in one, much more complicated, much more costly. Uh, and you look on that basis, BYD's uh, uh, pure battery electric vehicle sales last year were 900,000, whereas Tesla's were 1.4 million around the world. But electric is not the whole story here. In fact, from our point of view, when it comes to Tesla, uh, autonomous, Autonom their autonomous strategy, autonomous taxi platforms is much more important than their electric vehicle strategy. In our view, our $1,500 price target for Tesla, it's roughly, it's a little over $200 now, but our $1,500 price target in five years is two thirds because of autonomous. And when we listen to BYD, we do not hear autonomous as a strategy. That, by the way, my opinion, huge boon for which company? No, no, I know you're saying Tesla. I know you're saying Tesla. It's okay. NVIDIA, seriously, huge, huge boon for NVIDIA there. 
Now, I, I don't wanna come across as like hyping NVIDIA right now because the darn thing ran so much after earnings because all they did was talk about AI and it's like, Rah! Like, I wanna buy more NVIDIA. I don't want you guys to pump it on the stand. Uh, I understand AI is important, don't get me wrong. Kathy is gonna talk about it as well, okay? Like, yes, but like most companies, have already been using AI and developing AI. They've just not really been talking about it since ChatGPT, and now everybody's like, don't worry, we too are working on our AI, yes. Yes, I too am working on AI with our company House Hack, okay? Like, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but apparently, uh, everybody thinks it's a big deal. But no, NVIDIA, why? Because when the companies realize they're behind, like Mercedes, who only fixes about, I think it's 17% of their recalls via over their uh, the air updates, uh, companies like Mercedes, what do they do? Well, they realize they're way behind on autonomy. So as you can see here in the NVIDIA earnings call, and I'll just summarize it here, but basically what you see with, oh, it's 17%. Uh, what you see with uh, Mercedes is Mercedes going to companies like NVIDIA for their autonomous uh, and automotive technology, whether it's the systems on chips or, or, or whatever, uh, the GPUs for the, the neural nets, the, the AI basically for, for your driving uh, and observation, uh, whatever. I think NVIDIA is actually a big winner of automotive companies falling behind Tesla. I think a lot of people, I mean, look at it this way. Toyota, Mr. Toyota from Toyota is like, oh no, uh, hybrids are the way, hybrids are the way, that's the future. That guy gets fired for reiterating that hybrids are the future and he's part of the silent majority. He's fired. Now you get somebody else who's coming in. What's he saying? EVs are the future. And it's true, like electric vehicles are the future. So, so pure EV platforms, Coming soon for, for Toyota, finally. Finally, they're getting with it. But look at that. That's like five or six years behind when they should have made that realization. They should have made that realization back in 17 or 18. Now you've got companies that are like, nah, we don't. Toyota's another one of them, by the way. Oh, we don't need autonomy. We just need adaptive cruise control or whatever. You know, like I drove a pretty much a brand new Sprinter van yesterday. Sprinter vans, by the way, Absolutely beautiful, fantastic cars. I cannot wait until Tesla makes a Sprinter van. And I know that Elon Musk has a, a place in his heart for the Sprinter van. I think they're just prob probably too large to gigacast yet and they gotta kind of perfect the model before they get to larger ones. I don't know, that's my hope and that's the excuse I'm giving. I just hope by 2030 I get a Sprinter van from a Tesla. And that's because I want the autonomy. I'm driving this thing and it sucks. It sucks, I'm sitting there for like 90 minutes and I have to hold the steering wheel. Okay, I, I know that sounds terribly first world, but my point of that argument is once you drive every day and you technically don't drive because you're on full self-driving, you're just sort of supervising, how do you go back? You don't. But the legacy companies are so far behind, they're like including BYD and not investing in, in autonomy like Kathy Wood says, they're going to be forced to dive into autonomy, and they're not gonna have the time to develop it themselves, so what are they gonna do? They're gonna go to a company like NVIDIA, or, you know, Mobileye, which, which you know, Intel's spinning off. So, uh, or whatever, wherever they can find it. I'm not saying NVIDIA's the only player, but I am saying, if you kind of wanna hedge to Tesla's autonomy, NVIDIA's actually a very interesting play. Anyways, keep going. We hear it more with Xpeng, uh, but again, they, from a unit volume point of view, are far behind BYD and Tesla. So that's how we're looking at the world right now. I think when you're talking about electric vehicles, you're not talking just about drivetrain, the drivetrain strategies. 
Um, I think the companies that are going to win, as I mentioned before, are not focused only on electric. They're focused on autonomous, which means they are focused on three of our major innovation platforms. First, uh, robotics. Autonomous vehicles are robots. Second, energy storage. They will be electric because the total cost of ownership now uh, for uh, vehicles is uh, lower for electric than gas powered. And three, artificial intelligence. So these are three major platforms. Artificial intelligence will power these autonomous electric vehicles. And we believe yep. that Tesla, from a thought leadership point of view, is leading the charge, so to speak, in this uh, in this movement towards autonomous electric vehicles. And just in in terms of your fragmentation point, you know the the five thousand dollar vehicles. If you look at the range and performance of those vehicles, there's no comparison to a Tesla Model Three. The range is very limited. The power is very limited. So you really do have to adjust uh, when you're talking about price to, for, for range and performance, which is what we do. And well, most people do, but there are some people who are so convinced that Elon Musk is an evil man that they don't do that. And it's so weird. I feel so terrible about it, but there's someone in my family who is such a person. I still love them. I'll still have beer with them. Whatever, just saying, it's crazy. And uh, I do believe that Tesla has, for a given price, the best range and performance of any car on the market today. One yeah, other thing I could say, David, sorry. Um, Go ahead. That we're not just talking about uh, battery technology, drive trains, when we're talking about autonomous. We're talking, as I mentioned before, about robots, energy storage, artificial intelligence, and we're talking about software as a service. So over-the-air software updates. I got my, um, I bought my first Model 3 in 2018. I have never taken it in for service. I have never been to any station. I don't have to go to a gas station. Okay, warning, do not ride with Kathy her tires are probably bald. <laughs> Just kidding. That's obviously different than service, but it's like, that, that's important. <laughs> so think about that. How much in the way of costs and convenience I have been saved over these last five years. The most important variable uh, we believe in this new AI age is um, proprietary data. And I, I think uh, if we're looking for killer apps, you know, a lot of people are trying to compare this to the early days of the internet. And we didn't know during the early days of the internet that it was the apps on top of the internet that were going to garner all of the economics, the social networks, of course. And, um, and today what we uh, believe people are missing is that the big winners are going to be those companies that not only have the right AI expertise, but also have the right domain expertise. If you thought, if you talk about life sciences and multiomics, 
DNA, RNA, proteins, methylation. You've got to have domain expertise and understand that. But even beyond that, you have to have your own data. So we think uh, that AI is going to cause one of the most profound productivity increases in the history. This, by the way, is very similar to what Brett Whitten, who's obviously also at ARC, uh, mentioned in the interview with me, uh, which, I mean, you, again, you should watch that interview. Uh, it's uh, just type into YouTube, meet Kevin, ARC, uh, invest and you should see it. Brett Whitten, phenomenal examples of that productivity increase that AI could do in your life where maybe that AI isn't separate on like ChatGPT, but it's like built into your Excel spreadsheet or your email or, or your text messages or, or whatever. And it makes your life so much easier. I mean, I, I just want to give a, 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 like a simple, simple, super easy example of something that already exists today that makes my life easier is like, if I want to say like, uh, somebody's like, oh, where are you? I, on an iPhone, I could just type, I'm here, and then it shows up. You press the little button, it's like current location, boom, it already does that for me. Think about that just like on steroids, right? With with what, uh, where, where technology can go in terms of understanding what we're trying to do and then simplifying our lives. It's, it's really incredible. Which we're always remember, if you also want to simplify your life, use the flash sale down below to get lifetime access to the programs I'm building your wealth. Whether that's a zero to millionaire real estate investing course, the most popular right now, followed by stocks and psychology of money. Both of those as a bundle, very, very popular. Uh, fantastic way to learn how to build your wealth in investing. And then if you are looking for making more money as an employee or entrepreneur, more tax benefits, LLCs, whatever, check out the Elite Hustlers course. Uh, these come with a lifetime access to their live streams and would love to have you there. Let's keep going. Of of the world and so you have to as you're looking at investing you you must look at companies and how they're harnessing ai to lower their cost structures that's the first killer app and mm -hmm. then other companies that have proprietary data like tesla we'll go back to uh tesla it has more it has collected over the last five to seven years the highest number of real world um, driving miles uh, in the world. In fact, it has probably collected more miles uh, by an order of magnitude than all of the other auto and tech companies around the world. And that's why we think it is in the pole position to develop and win at the autonomous taxi platform uh, strategy. The first company to get from point A to point B most safely and quickly is probably going to win. So we're looking at a lot of winner take most opportunities in this new AI world. And the winner take most, as I mentioned before, is based on bringing in the right AI expertise the right domain expertise for your own businesses and the highest quality and biggest pools of data upon which to train AI in our flat. Yeah, that's a really good point. The training of AI as well. You need, it's not just having the machine or, or some data, it's having a lot of data. Uh, and that's probably the hardest part of AI. And that's where she's suggesting Tesla's clearly a leader. And it, it's, it's a, I think, a fantastic response to Charlie Munger and, and, and makes me quite excited for seeing what's coming up on Investor Day. Again, watch my video on Investor Day, but just to give you a little preview. Personally, I think it's very possible that the Model 2 or whatever that people think is going to be announced at Investor Day, I could be wrong, 
but I wouldn't be surprised if it's actually that $25,000 car is actually the Model 3. In other words, here's how we can make the Model 3 cost 50% less to produce and sell it for $24,690, whatever they choose, and actually have an affordable car that's amazing. In other words, not going down to a two-door car or not going down to a limited range car to get to 25K, which is generally what people expect with a, two, uh, a Model 2. I've also been a believer that in the future, a smaller car like that would come up. I do think a car like that makes probably sense for the Chinese markets, but I've adapted my vision and I agree with Brett Whitten from ARC when he told me in person that the likelihood of a, a smaller car like that being popular in the United States is very low because as Americans, we buy a car for that, that edge case scenario, not for our everyday scenario. So I thought that was uh, really incredible. But anyway, we'll see. That'll be fantastic. Very cool perspective here from uh, Kathy on, uh, on, on Tesla and the autonomy. I definitely think there's a lot of uh, lack of paying attention to what's going on in, in autonomy. So uh, super exciting. So, uh, okay, let's, uh, let's keep going here. Okay. Uh-huh. All right, so uh, let's look at a few Q&As we've got here. America loves them huge cars. America, the bigger, better. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, huh? No kidding. Kind of want a Rivian truck, too pricey. Well, they're pricey because the company's losing money like crazy on manufacturing them, but they are very nice. Very, very nice, by the way. Does the do-yourself do course teach you how to rebuild a destroyed house? Remember, the do-it-yourself course is really trying to teach you how to renovate for rental and do-it-yourself property management. So it's do-it-yourself property management and separately rental renovations. It's not like, all right, you know, your studs need to be 16 inches on center. That's, that's, that's like a contractor course, right? That's different. I'm a software dev, came here from Twitch Recommendations. I know nothing about the economy and marketing, but I watched here in the last 15 minutes. It's very interesting. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Thank you for watching on Twitch. Planet Fitness. I think Kathy is also ahead of this curve, but it could happen faster than we imagine. Uh, that's also potentially true, how quickly uh, uh, AI will, I think, how quickly, I think AI will personally get to 80 to 90% very, very good, very quickly. Uh, but I think that last 10, 20% will be very difficult. Uh, for example, the uh, AI that we're training for house hack is, is very, very, very good, uh, 80 to 90% of those time. Uh, but getting that, that last 10, 20% in, much like Tesla full self-driving, is the most difficult part. And that's the part where it still takes a lot of human intervention to make sure you're not getting screwed, much like Opendoor and Zillow, who relied too heavily on their, their algorithms and their broken AI, and, and now they're, you know, well, Zillow thankfully got out quickly enough, but Opendoor is basically getting screwed. Someone here is asking, why were you bearish on energy the previous week? Almost all energy companies are also in green energy. Yes, this is true. Look, for example, at a company like Occidental, uh, Occidental Petroleum, ticker OXY. They are uh, into manufacturing carbon, uh, carbon capture technology, which in the future could be extremely profitable. But unfortunately today, I've come to the conclusion that it's just a little bit of essentially clickbait to suggest that the oil companies are also in green technology, offshore wind farms, carbon capture technology or whatever, like, or BPs into electric vehicle chargers. Don't mistake it. These companies are oil companies, natural gas companies, right? These companies use 
carbon, uh, uh, carbon-based energy to make lots of money. Yes, are they trying to transition to green because they have so much money and they can make massive investments into green? Yes, but those are still money-losing investments at this point. So it doesn't make me very excited uh, about having a heavy allocation to, to those. Even though they do, it, it, it's just not the primary. It's like a sideshow, and I feel like it's more of a a political sideshow than like a profitable sideshow. And and I'm I'm not very interested in political. I like I don't like making investments based on politics because politics are insane. Like the political. I mean, you, y'all. I mean, most of you remember. I ran for governor. I I I got to see firsthand coming in second place of recall candidates in California, what, what the political system was like. And it's nutty. Now we got to talk about another crazy COVID conspiracy confirmed, as the Wall Street Journal has for us. I downloaded this this morning. Take a look at this. This is a mind-blowing piece. Wall Street Journal now saying the energy department, which is one of the big players in scientific data of the government, not some of these other sideshow organizations that still think COVID came from natural transmission because somehow bats can infect humans. Nope. The Wall Street Journal finally flip-flopping, siding with the energy department and saying the energy department says the lab leak most likely origin of COVID uh, or, or the lab leak uh, in China, Chinese lab leak, was the most likely origin of COVID. It's very interesting. Let's take a look at, uh, at what we've got here. So the Wall Street Journal, breaking this down, the U.S. Energy Department has concluded that the COVID pandemic most likely arose from a lab leak. Remember Wuhan and how China vehemently denied that this came from a lab leak, that this was just natural transmission from like a wet market or whatever, where they were selling, you know, certain animals or whatever, and somebody got sick at the market. They did not at all want to indicate that they were potentially responsible for the COVID pandemic. I mean, think about how many people died, how much the economy in in many regards was destroyed because of COVID. Now, obviously some things became a lot stronger thanks to government handouts and stimulus, most specifically rich governments, uh, or rich uh, government uh, businesses related and or closely associated with the government, whether that was the airlines or businesses receiving PPP funding or people who are real estate investors, much to the hurt of poorer people who didn't own businesses, assets, uh, or real estate. And so anyway, very unpopular, obviously, for China to take the uh, L on COVID, but that what used to be right-wing conspiracy more and more seems to be exactly what happened. The shift by the energy department, which previously was undecided on how the virus emerged, updated this particular 2021 document with just a small five-page report update. And they're highlighting how different parts of uh, the intelligence community are coming to different conclusions about the origin. Uh, But the FBI now joining with the energy department and saying the virus likely spread via a mishap in a Chinese lab. Uh, some of the other uh, uh, departments, including the energy department, originally made a judgment with low confidence, quote unquote, low confidence that this came from a lab leak. But now they're switching and flip-flopping to basically saying, yeah, it was probably a lab leak. 
Uh, and so they go into some more detail over here. Uh, I think it's quite interesting here that the FBI, excuse me, the FBI previously came to the conclusion that the pandemic was likely the result of a lab leak in 2021 with, quote, moderate confidence. And they still hold the view of moderate confidence. The FBI apparently employing microbiologists, immunologists, and other scientists, uh, and, and they support their conclusion that, hey, it's there's moderate confidence that this was a lab leak. The National Intelligence Co uh, Council, uh, which, of course, refused to comment here, they still have a low-confidence belief that this came from natural transmission from an infected animal. The CIA and other agencies... Uh, believe that, uh, let's see here, are still undecided between the lab leak or natural transmission theories. But the uh, energy department flipping is seen as a pretty big deal. And there's a reason it's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, because the energy department is seen as having scientists which could actually uh, potentially really have a, a conclusion in this that matters most or carries much more weight than the opinion of the FBI or the CIA. The update here, which was less than five pages, was not requested by Congress. Officials didn't say if an unclassified version of the update would be issued. The COVID-19 virus first circulated in Wuhan, China, no later than November of 2019. The pandemic's origin had been the subject of vigorous and sometimes partisan debate amongst, well, the community. A Stanford mi microbiologist who has argued for a dispassionate investigation of the pandemic's beginnings welcomed word of the updated findings. Kudos to those who are willing to set aside their preconceptions and objectively re-examine what we know and what we don't know about the COVID origin, uh, who has served on several federal scientific advisory boards, my plea is that we do not accept an incomplete answer or give up because of political expediency. And I think, unfortunately, that's what we ran into a lot of uh, during the COVID pandemic. And it's something that I have to say, kind of funny, but finally, you're getting some of the more mainstream comedy outlets picking up on uh, how ridiculous uh, some of the elements of the COVID pandemic were. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's quite fascinating. For example, Elon Musk uh, shared uh, and retweeted a, uh, a, a SNL. Uh, and I'll go ahead and play that clip. It's this 30-second clip here from SNL, and it's hilarious. Uh, but it also kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit. But listen to this, and then think how this relates to what we're seeing here from the Wall Street Journal. So listen to this one here. Okay, so the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes, and people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is gonna believe that crazy idea? <laughs> okay, so the movie goes like this. The that's, biggest uh, drug- That's a good one. That's essentially making fun of the idea that the COVID pandemic and, and how it played out with gotta take the vaccine if you wanna go out, play out much like a really bad movie script. But anyway, going back to the Wall Street Journal article here, it's, it's worth noting this section here where they say the Energy Department's conclusion is the result of new intelligence and is significant because the agency has considerable scientific expertise and oversees a network of U.S. national laboratories, some of which conduct advanced biological research. Now, if we jump over here, this idea that uh, COVID came from some form of animal source, as the Wall Street Journal points out here, is interesting because there's really a lack of an animal source 
And that's why Wuhan has been sort of the center uh, of, of attention because Wuhan is where China spends most of their time studying coronavirus research. Which remember, what is the common cold in America? The common cold is caused by four different strains of a coronavirus. It's really interesting. This is where you actually have people who have gotten sick with the common cold have potentially more of an immunity in the near term against COVID because they just had the common cold, which shares similarities to COVID because they're all coronaviruses, human coronaviruses, uh, than, than the benefits you might have gotten from a recent booster. Kind of interesting. Immune imprinting obviously has a lot to do with that as well. As the Wall Street Journal has previously described that immune printing makes boosters substantially less effective because the more you get boosters, the more you're really just boosting your resistance potentially to the original strain of COVID in the original vaccines and not actually the new strains. Fascinating. However, the idea that Wuhan is the center of uh, China's extensive COVID research is something we already know. And that's why the focus is on Wuhan and the idea that, hey, it's probably likely that COVID came from a lab in China and was a little oopsie doopsies, which is pretty bad on the international community scale for China. It's more egg on the face for China because it suggests that, hey, China, you shouldn't be on the edge of research because y'all going to screw it up. And this is exactly why the United States in part is also trying to limit China's access to uh, the ability to manufacture three and two and even one nanometer advanced chips via companies like ASML or whatever being banned from being able to sell their chip making machines to China uh, because the United States doesn't trust China. Although then again, many of us don't trust what our own government does either. But anyway, Wuhan is home to an array of labs, many of which are built or expanded as a result of China's traumatic experience to SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome epidemic, which began in 2002. They include campuses of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and the Wuhan Institute of Biological Products which produces vaccines. An outbreak at a seafood market in Wuhan had initially been thought to be the source of the virus, but some scientists and Chinese public health officials now see it as an example of community spread rather than a place where the first human infection occurred, the 2021 intelligence community report said. Remember, this is just now coming out, this flip from the energy department, an adjustment to that intelligence report. In May of 21, President Biden told the intelligence community to step up its efforts to investigate the origins of COVID and directed that review. Uh, it drew on the work of U.S. laboratories and other agencies. Congress, he said, would be kept informed of the effort. The 2021 October report said there was a consensus that COVID-19 was not the result of a Chinese biological weapons program, but it didn't settle the debate over whether it resulted from a lab leak or came from an animal. The U.S. intelligence community is made up of 18 agencies, including offices of the Energy, State, and Treasury Department. Eight of them participated in COVID origins reviews, including the National Intelligence Council. Before the report, the Energy Department prepared a study in May of 2020, concluding that a lab leak hypothesis was plausible. And only today are we hearing that it's been flipped to likely, right? 
The debate over COVID-19 having escaped from a lab has been fueled by U.S. intelligence and researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, becoming sick enough in November of 2019 that they sought hospital care. Remember some of the original doctors, in, in fact, one very uh, uh, famous doctor, whose name I can't remember at the moment, died uh, 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 suddenly. Who knows if that was sort of China kind of uh, maybe encouraging that, you know, uh, p pinch the IV line a little bit, you know. But anyway, uh, one of one of the doctors who was involved at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was coming out saying, hey, like, there's been an accident. Like, this, this is probably a lab leak here. It's probably our fault. And I'm, oops, that person happened to die. Anyway, uh, the debate over whether COVID-19 might have escaped from the lab has been fueled by U.S. intelligence. The U.S. Intelligence Committee report concluded last year that this disclosure didn't strengthen either the lab leak or natural, natural origin theory last year. Remember, that's now been adjusted. But some former U.S. officials say sick researchers were involved in coronavirus research. Lawmakers have sought to find out more about why the FBI assesses a lab leak uh, as, uh, as a likely theory. So now the FBI and the Energy Department are on the same page. And uh, they're not sharing the details, citing the integrity of investigations. Uh, but the big bottom line here is the suggestion, suggestion that the Energy Department now thinks it's likely COVID started uh, from a lab leak. Kind of crazy to think of all of the craziness we've been through uh, likely being the result of just an experiment gone wrong. And wild to think about how many people were vilified for talking about that. And I think that's probably the most sad part is the amount of vilification and censorship that occurred around the lab leak theory on Twitter, obviously pre-Elon Musk, and while you still had Twitter censorship and shadow banning uh, or visibility filtering as they do. Uh, sad to see that discussion was limited over that origin. And potentially, here we are, what, two, three years later, now becoming more confident in the lab leak theory, which if that confidence had maybe occurred earlier, maybe we could have minimized some of the pain and suffering and, uh, and, and the death and destruction that occurred from COVID. Kind of wild. Kind of wild. All right. Let's take a look at some commentary. Half of us knew, from, knew that from day one. Yeah, that's, uh, that's possible. So let's see here. Let me kind of other commentary. Commentary, 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 Nope. All right. So uh, let's go to the next topic. So uh, let's see here. Let's jump into this one. Yes. All right. We're going to talk about the bears next. Let's go talk about the bears. All right. I'm trying to contain my... Hold on. Get that ready. Never let a good crisis go to waste. Oh, dear. This is someone here. Now we've got to talk about the bears again. Let's take a listen to what some of the bears are saying, and we're going to talk about what is being said about maybe this time is different. New piece out from the institutions we'll be looking at in just a moment, but let's go ahead and get started with the bear piece. Remember the flash sale on the programs on Building Your Wealth is linked down below and expires with Investor Day next week. Let's go. I'm trying to contain myself, Scott, but it's difficult. I think this move today is one of the most idiotic moves I've seen in the markets in quite a long time. Um, today's news is not news, okay? Last week you had the CPI. And this is talking about PCE, right? So the market moving down on uh, moving red. This individual is calling the market moving red idiotic because 
we already knew that inflation was coming in hotter for January. This is nonsensical is essentially what he's saying. It's an argument I've made before, but we'll also see the counter argument here in just a moment. Let's keep going. PPI for the month of January. They showed that inflation blipped up in January. PCE today for the month of January, which I will remind everybody was 24 days ago that it ended, is once again showing it hot. Okay, that tells us nothing about where we're going. Prior to that, you had three months in which inflation reports came in better than expected. So the question before us, Scott, before the Fed, before any investor, is which which is the true story? Is January a blip or is it or is it a new, a new trend? And if you look at commodity prices, if you look at goods prices, they are clearly showing that the trend to disinflation is intact. The question that hangs there, Scott, is what's going on with wages? I don't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer until we get next week's labor report. But to this is obviously the bullish argument here. The person on the right is going to give us the bearish argument. I do want to say he says nobody knows the answer about wages. I'm not saying I know the answer, but I think we got plenty of indicators. Read the earnings calls for, uh, this might sound redundant if you've been listening for a while, but I'll say it really quick. Lyft, Uber, massive, extreme increase in the availability of drivers. Uh, Cloudflare, massive amount of people applying for very few jobs. 1,300 open jobs, 400,000 applications in 2022 for those 1,300 jobs. The availability of labor is extreme. It's becoming easier to hire people at Chipotle, at Starbucks, at Target, at Walmart, pretty much at restaurants across the country. Labor is becoming substantially more available. It's going to be a while before we actually see that because we are still going through some of that shifting. Let's keep going. Read down today, whether you're an algo or a person, on yesterday's news, which is what today's PCE is, is idiotic. Today's news, Weiss, Mester, inflation's too high, do a little more to get price stability, bring interest rates above 5%, hold them there. How do you see it? I mean, Jim, he used the word idiotic on the, on the sell-off. You know, if I were on the wrong side of the trade, I'd probably think it was idiotic also. But oh, it's such a slam. He's basically saying, well, you're a bull and the market went red today. Of course you're saying it's idiotic. Oh, <laughs> burn. But I'm not. So I continue to be bearish. This fuels the bearish narrative. It fuels the narrative of being... Uh, you know, higher for longer with the Fed. The Fed is going to err on the side of doing too much. And I'll go back to what I said yesterday and all these times before. Bulls can focus on a single data point. They can explain away, say this was expected. You know, are you guys idiots? What's new here? Which is essentially what we saw just now from my colleague here. But the reality is that it's directional. The economy directionally is slowing while the Fed is raising rates. So what's idiotic is to have multiple expansion in that environment. Multiple expansion is fine when you have trough earnings. We're nowhere near trough. So the market is way overvalued, will continue to decline as the economy worsens inflation now, I want to just quickly interject and make sure to remind you that when they're talking about multiple expansion, this doesn't mean that every company is overvalued. It's basically saying, why did the S&P 500 see its multiple valuation go from 16 to 18? Why would you have multiple expansion in this environment? And really, there, there are two potential reasons. Uh, one is 
it's stupid and it's going to fall back down because the Fed's going to push us into a deep, dark recession. And especially, in my opinion, the consumer staples uh, and, and the legacy companies within the S&P 500 are going to go into a recession. Their earnings are going to collapse and you should not be paying these sort of multiples for the S&P 500. I believe this is roughly what he's saying. Uh, now, the other uh, idea and, and potentially counter argument to his idea that the market is overvalued, should not be seeing multiple expansion. The potential counter argument is the idea that, well, what if we're not facing a Paul Volcker? What if the markets are pricing in serious fear and have been for the last year that well, this is a repeat of the 1970s, we're going to have to go through a deep, dark depression to kill inflation? Well, if the markets are pricing in massive fear of a Paul Volcker, then when the fear of a Paul Volcker goes away, the market could actually expand even as rates continue to go up. Because even if rates go to six, six and a half percent, it's still better than a Paul Volcker. So it just depends how the market is weighting that negative potential, right? Let's keep going. Really bad now. I feel really bad because now I realize I just pulled a Weiss saying idiotic. You're right, Steve. I shouldn't use idiotic. You know, because that's your uh, venue it's to say fine things. It's to are, use you when you're talking are, about yourself, but say not things about are others. delusional, insane. Oh, he just called them idiotic. This is great. Stupid, <laughs> stupidly insane, criminally insane. I mean, the number of adjectives that you've used when things are not going exactly your way to explain away data points is prolific. But I mean, your, you're right. your case, let me, let's be honest, okay? <laughs> Um, it's very easy to be negative. I, I totally get it. But your case is harder to make because a good economy like you've been pointing out only means more activity from the Fed. Right. It means more demand that they need to crush. It means rates are likely to continue to move up or at least stay elevated. And that's a problem for stocks, isn't it? Regardless yeah. of it, how it, idiotic you think this move is, yeah. that is a problem. And that's what Michael Hartnett talks about today and why he says from the Bank of America Flow Show, S&P goes to 3,800 by March 8th. That's you know a couple of weeks away. He essentially makes the case. Rates up, stocks down. Not that complicated. Yields are going to go north of 4% and the S&P is going to go lower. Give me, uh, good job bringing it down to taking the insults out. But I, I applaud you for that. Uh, give me next week's labor report. Let's see how average hourly earnings are. I, I hate to wait three weeks for the CPI, PPI of February. But I'm telling you, this is one man's opinion, just one man's opinion. As far as what the Fed is going to do and the impact on the markets, you need to see February's inflation report to determine if January was an outlier or the start of a resurging inflation trend. All right. So, Brenda Vangelo, join the conversation. Weigh in on this little mini debate that we've had uh, to start the show here on the desk. Sure. Thank you. So I, I think that it, it could be that January just ended up being overly hot. That's the time of year when everybody puts your price increase. Usually salaries go up. We also had that you know significant increase in Social Security benefits that really probably boosted um, consumption during that time. But at the end of the day, I think if we look at data right now, you cannot deny that the consumer is still incredibly strong. They're not spending on all the things they spent on during the pandemic, but they're absolutely spending on all kinds of other things like travel, um, as we heard from booking, things are really fantastic. They're spending on events and concerts. The consumer is still really strong. So I think even though that likely means the Fed is gonna continue to raise interest rates here, I also think it might paint a little bit of a different picture in the shorter term for corporate earnings, because I think we had all been expecting that things would be really starting to slow down, uh, that companies would no longer be able to pass along price and higher costs. 
And that dynamic might change a little bit, particularly for those companies in the services sector where we're still seeing demand be really strong. So I think it's not all potentially negative here, but are we in for a choppy period? I think absolutely until we can sift through all of this and really understand exactly what's happening. But in my mind, it's clear that the consumer is really strong and that's such an incredibly strong part of our economy uh, that in my mind, that's, that's a positive. I'm trying to continue. Maybe a positive. Unless, as the bear said, oh, who's sitting on the right of this picture here, maybe that means the Fed goes way too far. And I think that's really the big bear argument. Now, the problem is we got to pay attention to the catalysts. The catalysts are quite interesting. Because the bull here mentioned, give me the labor report next week. Eh, I'm not confident that the labor report, first of all, I know it ain't coming out next week, A. And B, I'm not confident that the labor report is actually going to be super helpful. As long as it doesn't indicate any kind of wage price spiral, which I doubt it will, it's very unlikely that the labor report is going to show any kind of real softening that will really help the bullish argument. I actually think what you're waiting for is CPI. Now, the labor report, you want to write this one down. Mark your calendar for March 10th. That's when the labor report comes out. CPI, Consumer Price Index Inflation, comes out on March 14th. And then, of course, the FOMC meeting is March 22nd. So, pretty traditional bear argument here that, hey, the Fed's going to over-tighten, and the traditional bull argument is, hey, well, maybe it's not going to be that bad because consumers still have money to spend through this recession, and inflation is going to go away. But is this time different? So, Morgan Stanley has an interesting piece over here, and some of this, it just makes sense to read parts to because they make this interesting argument. So, usually when we say the word, this time is different, what we're doing is we're kind of making fun of the people who are taking the long stance going, oh, well, the market will be fine. This time is different because those are generally deemed to be the four most dangerous words in investing. Oh, this time is different. Well, Morgan Stanley makes the argument that, well, I mean, let's be real here. Every time is different. So as markets look to the future, the standard practice is to assume that cycles are cycles and taking history as a guide and anyone shouting this time is different is met with skepticism. But of course, we have all lived through COVID now and the, fact, uh, the facts alone set this cycle apart from others. So it's worth asking, what is different this time and what is not? I think this is a great piece, so let's go through it. The COVID pandemic distinguishes this cycle from the past World War II business cycle. Demand collapsed in a highly correlated way. Nearly every data, economic, uh, data series now has a very clear statist statistical break, marking the first difference relative to other cycles. In other words, it's a, everything in unison basically hit a wall with COVID. That's very different from, uh, from other cycles. The key characteristic of this cycle is what they say here, volatility in supply and demand, and how shocks evolved across different sectors. The initial collapse in demand for both goods and services was followed by a resurgence of demand for goods against the specific supply chain that was basically wrecked. The decoupling of demand for goods from demand from services has not been seen in previous cycles. So this is interesting. They're basically saying, hey, like, we haven't had a cycle before where everybody's at home ordering crap on Amazon, but they're not using services as much because all of a sudden they're cutting their own hair, right? This is a really interesting argument because it's like, yeah, like we were kind of stuck at home buying crap on Amazon, buying our groceries online, and we were cutting our own hair. That's And we're not going to the dentist, right? Like that's weird. We haven't seen that before because we haven't been in a pandemic before where there was Amazon, <laughs> right? Uh, so that's a, it's a good point. Uh, and it kind of then explains why we have seen this massive inflation in goods 
and now the goods deflation is occurring or disinflation is occurring. But the services explosion came much later. So of course it's going to take longer for that services disinflation, which again, that's where the bears say, yep, exactly. Taking longer is why the market's going to be in pain for longer. But anyway, the initial collapse in demand led to disinflation, but the surge in demand for goods in particular led to goods inflation to decouple from services inflation. This is to say that when everything hit a wall, companies are like, crap, we need to reduce prices to actually get people to buy it. But we had such a quick V-shaped recovery thanks to all the stimmy money, everybody went YOLO crazy, and what we have, massive inflation. Okay, we already know that. Subsequently, services demand recovered as the economy reopened, but the reopening was rife with frictions as a large swath of the labor market reinvented itself or was displaced for a period of time. This is so important to mention, the reinventing of the labor market, this idea that we never before had this normalized work from home culture. It used to be weird and embarrassing to say you work from home. Like right now, I know that sounds crazy to say, but if you're probably older than like 25, maybe even older than 23, and you've been in the workforce well before like 2018, you, you know what I'm saying. Like when I got into the real estate business in 2010, if you said, oh, I work from home, you were deemed as somebody who's just got a side hustle. You're not really serious about the business. Where's your office? I wanna go to your office. I wanna see you're actually investing in your business. Like that's old school. It was embarrassing to say you work from home. Now, work from home is like the norm. It's insane how that's changed. And that's led to a lot of reinventing as well, where you know some people now work at multiple companies from home at the same time because they're doing like two hours of work here, two hours of work there, two hours there, right? Making a lot of money doing that. Very, very, very interesting. But anyway, uh, we've also seen a massive rejiggering in the amount of people who've retired from retail and hospitality who are no longer working there. So you need a new cohort of people working there, people who were working in retail hospitality now potentially have moved on to working in tech because they got educated in, in, in tech. Who knows? Anyway, while the collapse in demand was highly correlated, the recovery was not. In other words, everything hit a wall, but we recovered in very weird ways. One consequence of this uncorrelated cycle is that inflation has been noisy. What an interesting argument because you have seen noisy inflation. I remember last year in March, it's like, yay, inflation is going down. And then it was like June or July, I'm on the beach in Germany live streaming. Oh no, inflation's going back to the moon, right? And then it comes down. And then like in October or September, it comes up again. It's like, oh no. And then it comes down for three months. And then it's January and it's, oh no, it's coming up again. It's been like, we've been on a downtrend, but it's been a stressful downtrend of, of disinflation, right? Today, we see that inflation for goods has notably retreated, but services inflation remains robust even after an aggressive tightening cycle. With inflation running hotter than at any point since the 1970s, we have another key difference. The Fed and other developed market central banks is hiking to bring inflation down. This hiking cycle is the first time since the 70s that we have been hiking with that motivation. This, by the way, reiterates the pivot argument that I've made many times before on this channel already, that when we go to pivot, the people who think, oh, the stock market's gonna crash after the pivot are missing the fact that the only time our Fed today will pivot is when inflation is conquered. But that's basically the big fear markets have right now is that inflation is going to last long. So a pivot should align, and that the Fed's going to over-tighten. So a pivot should literally align with euphoria because we will actually be improving by removing basically the cancer of inflation. 
Whereas in the past, Morgan Stanley is taking a, telling us, look, in the past, we would hike rates because growth was strong. And when growth was slowing, we would reduce rates and pivot because growth started slowing. That's very different. This time, the Fed is intentionally raising rates to slow growth substantially below the prior potential growth of the economy. So in other words, in the past, we would cut rates when the economy was slowing. This time, we're raising rates to purposefully slow growth. It's literally the opposite of when we usually uh, cut or raise rates. It's totally the opposite. So I'm saying people who are making these, and there are a lot of people getting a lot of views making these videos about the Fed pivot causing the next crash. I think all they do is they look at one chart and they're like, oh, well, there's a video for me. And they make a video about one chart and they're not stitching together what's actually happening. Maybe there's like a real economic, you know, education that's lacking. And I'm not saying I know everything. I don't, you know, I, I try to keep challenging myself, but it doesn't make sense. This idea that the markets are going to crash after the pivot, it dis disassociates why the Fed would pivot in this cycle. Anyway, this time, the Fed is intentionally raising rates to slow growth substantially below the potential growth rate of the economy and plans to keep them high while the economy slumps. That's the over-tightening concern. That's the bear argument. This central bank strategy is clearly a key difference uh, relative to other cycles. So where does this discussion leave us? Why is it important to highlight the differences in this cycle? Well, we have a soft landing view, have had a soft landing view for the U.S. economy for a long time. The pushback has consistently been that previous cycles have not had soft landings, so it's not reasonable to forecast a soft landing now. They're basically saying, look, in the past, we've never had a soft landing when we've, or we've rarely had a soft landing when we've talked about it. We had a soft landing in 2019 uh, after the 2018 Fed U-turn, and we had a soft landing in about the mid-90s, like 1994. But usually when we talk about a soft landing, we don't have a soft landing. Like you go back to 2006 and we're like, oh, real estate's just going to level off. And then it falls off a cliff, right? And you get a massive real estate recession. But anyway, the pushback has been that maybe it's unreasonable to forecast a soft landing now, but Morgan Stanley, these writers are forecasting a soft landing. Not to be confused with uh, Mike Wilson, who's a big bear. But anyway, we were comfortable that there were enough differences in the cycle this time to produce a different outcome. The market narrative has shifted towards us, and now the question arises whether we are actually seeing enough slowing or even a reacceleration. So far, we do not think there is sufficient evidence to change our fundamental view of a slowing economy. And going back to the Fed's strategy of intentionally slowing the economy below potential to squeeze inflation out, a no-landing scenario does not really make sense to us. But the data for January do reflect underlying strength. The seasonally adjusted non-farm payrolls were strong, reflecting much less of a contraction in jobs than is typical for January. This labor hoarding is a key part of why we have been in favor of a soft landing. In past cycles, where there has been a slowdown, there have been waves of layoffs. This time, we have seen that pattern in tech, but not across the rest of the economy. So maybe indeed, this time is different. In other words, Maybe it will be possible we could stick the soft landing. And this is where I just want to reiterate because sometimes I don't think people listen. And I just want to be very clear, not to say that I'm going to be right, but it's my opinion. And I think my opinion is very clear that a soft landing is bad for staples, industrials, uh, staples, <laughs> lol, uh, staples, industrial staples being like your McDonald's, your Costco, your grocery stores. Uh, I think also bad for your restaurants. I think it'll actually be good for pricing power stocks, 
especially Stimmy checks one, uh, Stimmy check ones, which would be things like Nvidia, Tesla, uh, Enphase, uh, things that have gotten hit pretty hard right now, but could do pretty well uh, going forward in, uh, in into the future. Uh, so, so that's my thesis. Uh, that 2023 is going to, and these companies have already done well over the last about eight weeks here, but I mean, even substantially better than what we've seen over the last just six weeks. Uh, but uh, going forward through the rest of 2023, and the reason I say stimmy check is because a lot of money is obviously being invested into uh, chips act, inflation reduction, energy. So that's why these are some of my favorite pricing power stocks right now. Uh, but anyway, very interesting argument that maybe, maybe, dare we say it, is this time different? Who knows? We'll see. Because there's also the very common and typical argument of, I don't know, man, say whatever you want, but don't fight the Fed. Loretta Mester's a bear. Well, what did we learn yesterday? Yeah, Loretta Mester was a little bearish and last time suggested maybe we need to go 50 BP. And a lot of people are sending me emails and shouting at me in the comments going, we're going to go to 50. I'm like, let me just reiterate. I talked about this yesterday, but let me just reiterate what Loretta Mester said. Loretta Mester said, I want the upper end, so the UE, the upper end, to be at 5%. The upper end today is at 4.75%. In the last meeting, the upper end was 4.5%. So if we're already past 4.5 at the upper end, we're at 4.75 now, guess what the difference is between 4.75 and 0.5, or, or, or 5% rather? 25 BPs, man. I, I, I don't think there's any way the Fed shoots themselves into the foot. And, uh, and and goes for a 50 BP. They'll, they'll kill any any nominal credibility that they have left. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, J-Pal. All right, anyway. Let's take a brief moment and listen into what these folks are yapping about because they seem pretty passionate. want to see, is he or isn't he? Because there are guys like Gavin Newsom out there. He's freezing the field. He's freezing the field. They right. want to know, are you going to or not? If you're not, we got to get ready. Well, I have no doubt that a lot of Democrats are getting ready just in case, and yeah. that's allowed in politics. But, you know, he is the president of the United States. He says he's going to run. And just to show that the Politico story didn't have uh, much weight, Jill Biden, the first lady, did an interview with AP, uh, I believe over the weekend, in Africa, in which she said, we're down to pretty much picking the time and place. And then she said, how many times does he have to say it for you to believe it? So uh, if you read signals in the media world, uh, that is Biden world saying, yeah, for uh, campaign finance reasons, we don't want to say he's running, but he's running, nor does he take any opportunity to knock it down. I gave myself the last word, Susan Friscio and Kevin Cork. Thanks very much. After the break, Steve. You know, what's interesting is this idea that, yeah, maybe Joe Biden wouldn't run, right? Now, over the weekend, uh, Jill Biden has actually reiterated, I think she's, or maybe it was Friday, she was on a trip to Africa or something like that. Uh, you know, she's she's reiterated this idea that Joe Biden's going going to re run again. Uh, now, what's what's wild about that is because you do have a lot of Democrats kind of on the sidelines, especially people like Gavin Newsom, who are kind of like trying to set themselves up to run for president, right? That's often what you do as well, as you use the California governorship as sort of your your stepping stone into the presidency. Personally, and this is just my take, if Gavin Newsom ended up running against somebody like Ron DeSantis and uh, Mr. By or President Biden was not in the running, I think you're handing the presidency to Republicans. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because I think there are, there are definitely 
I mean, there, there's a lot of reasonableness coming from, from Ron DeSantis. And I'm not trying to align myself here with the right. I think I'm, I'm very well in the middle. But you should be paying attention to what Ron DeSantis is doing and saying. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, okay, somebody here has a question about the inverted yield curve. Let, let me explain that really quick, and we'll append that. So give me one sec. Question here about the inverted yield curve, and why is everybody ignoring how deep the inverted yield curve is? So let me explain that. I've explained that in prior videos before, so sorry if it sounds redundant, but I, I want to make it very clear. What the inverted yield curve tells you is that today you're going to demand a higher interest rate than you will in the future. That's the basic principle. And usually when the yield curve inverts, it's because we think we're going into a deep, dark recession. And so we're going to demand more money to be invested today as we go through the recession than we will in the future. That's usually what the inverted yield curve tells us. However, and this, this is like the only counter argument that, it, that exists for the bulls regarding the inverted yield curve. It could be right. Historically, what I'm about to say is wrong. So history is in favor of the bears. But the bull response is, yes, of course the yield curve is so inverted today because we think the very high inflation we have today is going to plummet very quickly. See, because usually, let me try to depict that for you, okay? Usually, when you go into a recession, you take GDP growth, which let's say GDP growth is 2%. Here, I'll draw it like this. So let's say GDP growth is 2%. So usually if the market thinks we're going to go into a recession, the yield curve substantially inverts because we think GDP is going to go negative, right? So let's call it negative 0.5%. Uh, and then eventually after a recession, GDP recovers again, right? This is traditionally what a recession looks like. And so the idea is, well, the yield curve starts inverting here and then re-inverts, uh, you know, maybe somewhere over here, and then you actually have the depth of the recession still ahead of you. So during this part right here, you have an inverted yield curve, the IYC. And, and that's sort of the traditional belief of what the inverted yield curve signals. Now I wanna show you the potentially different chart, okay? That kind of looks the same, but watch this, okay? Instead of talking about GDP, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to say 7% inflation, right? And then you potentially get to negative 1% inflation, and then maybe you get back to, I don't know, positive, you know, I don't know, 2.5% inflation, which they explain away via the, uh, you know, flexible average inflation targeting or whatever. It is possible that the yield curve is actually describing what you're going to see in the plummeting of inflation. Because after all, the bond market is dictated by yields, right? So it's possible that the yield curve is telling you, no, 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 we think the reinversion of the yield curve will actually align with basically the, the, the like negative inflation. And then when inflation gets back to normal, the yield curve is, is already then normalized, right? So we don't know. But traditionally, the bears are right to say, yield curve, this inverted, hell ahead of us. Whereas the bulls are saying, yield curve this inverted, well, it's just pricing in all the disinflation we're about to see. It's crazy. I'm telling you, there are perspectives on every side here. I, th I think it's very cool to think about it that way. All right, let's go back to the these folks for a moment because I think they're saying some interesting stuff. So let's listen. Jeff Zucker, when they were at NBC, when the Celebrity Apprentice was going on. So it was personal. You know what? Actually, I'm going to go to the restroom break because I want to keep streaming and I'm dying over here. So I will be right back and I'll play this, but I'll be listening to it too because I have, well, Little headphones. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Save the republic. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And when you do that, I would argue what you should do is double down on your standards, and you should double down on your journalistic principles. Instead, what they did was say, oh, this is a special circumstance. We can let the guardrails go off. Along the same lines, you interviewed Pierce Morgan, who said that CNN drank the anti-Trump Kool-Aid and became indistinguishable from MSNBC. I, I think that that is, that is very fair to say, and that's, and that's really unfortunate, because there's a reason why we talk so much about CNN, I think, in the, in the broader cultural context, because CNN was the news, you know, and the, maybe it was boring sometimes, and yeah. it was a little crusty, but, but when news happened, you turned on CNN because you trusted it. When you lose that, because now all of a sudden you start associating them with political ideology, that's a huge problem for the brand. And I, I absolutely think that they went down that path. They're now trying to dig themselves out of that path. Yeah, I used to say that all the time. And on that note, uh, in fairness, Chris Lick, the chairman of CNN, is trying to fix the situation, uh, have more Republicans on. But he's got the Don Lemon embarrassment. Uh, he still hasn't replaced Chris Cuomo. And the ratings have been pretty awful. So it's hard to make that turn. And suddenly everybody trusts you again, like in the old days. It is hard to make that turn, and it's especially hard to make that turn when you're just sort of reshuffling the, the, the talent that was already there, that's been there during the Trump years. So right. that's generally what's happening right now so far. Uh, I think that the mandate to get back to news, to get back to objectivity, if you will, is the right one. But right now, the talent shuffling has not really borne that out. And a la reinventing Don Lemon, who had been such an ardent liberal as a morning perky morning show guy i don't i don't think being relegating him to a, a co-anchor on the morning show has worked out at all um certainly not on the rating side but also not on the journalistic side and that's and that's what you need don't worry about ratings that right now fine but get back to the journalism get back to some people bring some people maybe new people in that can actually you know fit that mission tara palmieri of puck told you that tough on trump stories got you celebrated by the left and okay I, I gotta I gotta counter some of this this stuff because, look, Fox News. I mean, I, let me put it this way. I think this is a little rich. Okay, this is coming from me as being in the middle here, but Fox News is basically pooping on CNN for being too politically and ideologic uh, ideologically whatever left. Dude, come on, man. We all know Fox leans so heavy right, like. This is like the pot calling the kettle black. Okay, you don't watch Tucker Carlson for the deepest dive journalisticness. You watch Tucker because he points out hypocrisy and it's entertaining and, and he kind of makes things a little more extreme than they are, but it's funny because it's fun to talk about in the office the next day. Uh, and, and you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's outrage news, right? And that makes sense. It's like you listen to Tucker and you just get angry. <laughs> It's entertaining. Uh, some of it is a little stretchy, but it's funny. You know, I, I mean, the other day he's talking about Pete Buttigieg being the Department of uh, 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 Transportation or the uh, secretary, and uh, and saying things like, "Does Pete even know how to drive a stick? I don't know. He's on paternity leave." And it's like, okay, <laughs> like it's funny, but uh, it, it's not. It, it doesn't actually give us like a journalistic insight into into what Pete is doing. But then again. What is Pete doing? I don't know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's let's move that aside. I just think I heard that, and I think it's a little rich for Fox News saying CNN is getting too uh, uh, too basically uh, politically aligned. Uh, that's unfortunately the tough thing, though. It's very difficult to find 
sort of central news source. That's what I try to do is I try to cover and, and, and look at the reasonableness of all sides. Personally, I think that gives me the best perspective for uh, investing and real estate because it keeps you more aligned with potentially like reality, which is usually a little bit more in the middle. Uh, but, uh, but that's not to say uh, you know, both political parties haven't been right and, uh, in, in certain circumstances and wrong in many, 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 many others. That's why politics sucks. Uh, politics is, uh, is, is pretty wild. Uh, so, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This was actually a good argument. So funny seeing Fox News admitting the election wasn't stolen behind the scenes and pushing the BS on air. So that's actually probably the biggest egg on the face to like Fox News and Tucker Carlson because see, if you... If you wanted to, uh, and, and li listen, I ran for governor in California during the time of this. And if you didn't align with the idea that the election was stolen uh, in favor of Donald Trump, right? Uh, or, 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 well, making the argument in favor of Donald Trump, then it was very difficult to get Republican votes. If you said the election was stolen uh, or was not stolen and that, that, that there is no vote rigging, you were basically just uh, an extreme leftist. And I think the vast majority of us realize, like, yeah, look, there are shenanigans that happen in elections, but do we think it was broad enough to actually change the outcome of election? Probably not. Uh, so, eh, you know, that's going to offend some people, maybe the, the left or right 10%, but but I think the, the middle core 80% is like, yeah, let's put that behind us. Uh, and the fact that, you know, Tucker Carlson, uh, Laura Ingram are sending text messages to each other going, hey, you know, we don't want to keep pushing this election stolen narrative because people are actually believing this. It's kind of surprising. It's kind of surprising. It's just You just can't, can't trust. Uh, you, it's sad because you, you almost have to be skeptical about just everything, right? And it's, and it's sad. I think that sometimes, uh, unfortunately, is very demotivating for, for people because it kind of makes you feel like nobody out there is trying to do the right thing. Uh, and it's really tough because then it sort of dissuades you from wanting to build success in your life. So like if you wear too much of a tinfoil hat, you kind of just don't believe anything anymore. And then you, you don't want to build a business or invest in real estate or invest in stocks. And, and then ultimately you end up hurting yourself, but then you also can't really be blamed for being tinfoil hatty because time and time again, some of the you know crazy conspiracies just end up actually being right. Uh, it, it's wild, it's really wild. So, crazy time. So, let's see. Uh, let's see what other potential commentary we have here. Mm -hmm. Will I run for governor again? Maybe, I don't know, in like 20 or 30 years, but I'm not super interested anytime in, in, in the near future doing anything with politics. Not interested. <laughs> it's, uh, there's, there's so much, there's so much, Cool. There's so many cool things you could do in business today. Why, why, why get into the hell of politics? You know, and this is why, I, unfortunately, I think it's very difficult for great people to um, to get into. Uh, uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't blanket statement that because there are some wonderful people in politics. But uh, I think I don't know if it's like if politics is corrupting, or you know, if it if it's social media involved with politics that's corrupting. Or it's uh, it's it's maybe people who are already corrupted who get into politics. I don't know. It just politics is just very slimy and frustrating. I'll just I'll leave it at that. Mm, you should always question everything, no matter what the circumstances are. 
yeah, I, th I think that's a great way to go through things. Is is, uh, and that's not that's not necessarily taking the counterpoint, but but having a s some level of healthy skepticism, right? I think that's very very important. Uh, they keep the good ones out. Yikes! Spy four twenty incoming. <laughs> I uh, slept for four hours, woke up at 5 a.m. yesterday, couldn't function all day. Immediately I said, how does Kevin do it daily? Yeah, uh, I do very poorly if I sleep under six hours a day. Uh, you you can't do that daily. So you, if you want to wake up early, you you, uh, you have to get more sleep on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the prior end. Uh, I think anybody who, anyone under like 40 or 50, since as you get older, you, you can get away with less sleep, who says they can actually function on less than six hours of sleep, I don't believe. Uh, my ideal, six and a half. Six and a half is functional with like 17, okay, maybe not that many, like five cups of coffee, six and a half hours, functional. <laughs> no no Adderall, no, no drugs for me, just coffee. People are always like, how much powder, Kevin? Oh no, 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 <laughs> just coffee. <laughs> uh... Uh, it's sad a lot of YouTube channels now have no no honest sponsored product review. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's difficult because so let me put it this way: I I don't have any sponsors on the channel, right? It's just it's just my courses on building your wealth. I'm my own sponsor. Look, you want you want to invest in me? I run an actively managed ETF. I uh, I have a real estate startup you can invest in. We've got a phenomenal one-to-one -one valuation. And I've got amazing programs on building wealth where I, where I just give you my brain on a platter basically, right? In various different topics from making money as an entrepreneur, an employee, a real estate agent, a YouTuber, stocks, real estate, whatever. Um, one of the th difficulties I find is if you, uh, for example, let's say you wanna do a review of a company and you want to do interviews with CEOs or whatever. Well, if you say something bad about a company, it's difficult to then get reinvited to future CEO interviews at even different companies because then it's like, well, you might be a hot potato. What if I invite you in and then you just, you know, say bad things about me? Then I'm just not going to invite you in at all, right? So there is a tendency if uh, a, a any kind of content creator, whether it's the news or whatever, there's a tendency that uh, for there to be a bias towards. Uh, a product or company because then you want to be involved with future products or companies. Uh, this is why I, I'm, I'm a big fan and believer of if I'm self-funded uh, basically via uh, my own programs on building your wealth, which if you appreciate what you get on this channel for free, even if you don't feel like you need the programs, uh, even just if you want to just pop into the live streams once every so often in the private live streams. Uh, it's basically a way of, of you saying thank you, right, uh, for, for the content that you do get for free on, on the channel uh, because nobody else sponsors me because I'm not taking other sponsors. But anyway, yeah, I think that, that there, is a, there is a heavy bias in, in product review. For example, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So Matterport. I, uh, uh, Matterport, uh, I've, I've uh, been a huge supporter of, and, and I still today am. I'm not an investor in Matterport. I don't think right now is the best time to invest in Matterport stock. But uh, I'm a big fan of the company. I'm a big fan of the service. They sent me the uh, the iPhone uh, scanner thingy to review for free, and um, I didn't I uh, I didn't like the product. It basically it's like a little motor you put your phone on, and it's a pain in the ass. Uh, it, like how many times you have to adjust the phone and how long it takes. The more expensive camera is substantially better. 
I would not recommend the iPhone one. I mean, unless you wanted to like screw around and you had all the time in the world to just do one scan or whatever. As a business owner, it's, it's a terrible product. Uh, and, and so I didn't make a negative video about the product uh, specifically because, I, you know, and this is, this is kind of like self-censoring almost. I didn't want to like poo-poo the company. I mean, here I am talking about it, right? But so what I did instead was I emailed them and I go, look, here's why I don't like the product. What say you? They didn't respond, but they did give me the product for free. And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm not gonna make a video on this. Just in fairness, I'm gonna let you know I don't like it. I will talk about it, but I'm not gonna make like a standalone like poop video on it. Um, but um, yeah, sorry. Thank you for the free product, but sorry. <laughs> like I'll send it back if you want it. Right? That's hard. You know, it's a lot easier to make a glowing review of the product and then have an affiliate link down below and then make money off talking about how great this product is even though you don't actually think it's great. That's easier. And some people have to do that just to survive. That's why I, I, I feel like I'm, I feel so free in that I can be very free with what I say here, mostly. YouTube's actually been very good with, uh, for, uh, for me. Uh, they, like, I, I feel like I, I don't get censored much on YouTube. I think some things maybe do, but um, like, I'll, I'll take what I can get. Uh, but uh, yeah, again, that's, that's why I sponsor myself. I think it creates some more freedoms. Uh, would you move to another state for tax purposes? Not us personally. No, I don't really care. Uh, I, I just, I just say for the 13%, I'll just work 13% harder. <laughs> Kevin, I'd love to see, I'd love to see Kevin on South Park. No, <laughs> I love South Park. South Park's awesome. Uh, yeah, pushing bad products will ultimately hurt you. Exactly. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So anyway, I think it's time to go. Appreciate y'all being here. No, I don't take any melatonin. I don't take none of that crap. I, 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 I dude, come on, man. When, when you, when you get six and a half hours and you're working all day long, I don't need anything to fall asleep. I fall asleep. <laughs> uh, waking up is the hard part, man. Come on. <laughs> you're talking about get, you're about to get censored for talking about getting censored. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, you should buy Ben's house. He is selling. Are you serious? What? No, he's not. Hold on. Uh, we got to look at this talk about Ben Mala potentially selling his house. That can't be true. Is that his house? Ben Mala. Let's see what's going on here. Oh, buying an $18 million. No. Where does he say that? Where does he say he's going to sell his house? I don't see that. Is he selling his house for $18 million? I don't know what he's doing. I can't, I can't believe that. No. He's talking about a, this is a property. This is like an apartment building. No, where, where did you see he's selling his house? Anyway, um, if you want to watch my video with Ben Mala, we went tubbing together and then I did an interview with him. He's great. You could just, uh, he's trolling. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't think so. Um, anyway, um, yeah, you can watch my video with him. Just type into YouTube, Ben Mala meet Kevin, uh, interview. Let me see. What did we call it? I called it. Uh, oh, there are two, two versions of this. So there's the Fire Pit Talk Meet Kevin. That's on Ben Mala's channel. You could watch that. That's when we talked by the Fire Pit. That was good. Uh, and then there's Ben Mala Meet Kevin. Where did we do? Where's my video? Oh, there it is. How to Become a Quarter Billionaire. $250 million. Uh, and then it's Ben Mala and me in the spot. How to Become a Quarter Billionaire. Watch that one. That one was pretty good. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, they, they got some funny videos. Uh, so anyway, all right. You, you should also watch this one. 
This one was funny. Mansion meets Kevin. This was hilarious. Watch that one. <laughs> uh, I've lost some weight since then. But anyway. All right. Thanks so much for being here, folks. Oh, today I will be dropping the boxable video, by the way. So stay tuned for that. The boxable video will be dropping today. All right, folks. Thanks so much. Goodbye.